Well, good morning again. My name is Pastor Milo. I'm glad that you're here this morning. Uh, There's something about me that some of you know, but not all of you do, is I am a bicycle enthusiast. Uh, I would say uh, that doesn't mean I ride as much as I'd like to. Some of you are very serious about it. Others of you have ridden across the country. Uh, I haven't done those things, but I like to cycle a lot. Uh, A number of the things that I kind of get interested in, though, is actually the idea of, like, building a bike or coming up with a new idea uh, for bikes. And so the, the starting statement I want to make to you this morning is that no man can ride two bicycles at one time. As far as I know, it hasn't been done. Like, I, I, I think that's something that we should try to do. Uh, someone should kind of develop this because uh, there's often times where you are at a point, you and your wife have ridden to the park, and she got tired and she took a ride home, and now you have two bicycles and you have to figure out how to get them home. How many of you have been in this situation before? Some of you were seven years old. Some of you dealt with this last week. And so you got to get two bicycles home. And so you begin riding down the sidewalk with one bicycle off to the side that has a mind of its own. And it's an impossible task. So no man can ride two bicycles. Uh, at our house, uh, we have something called an extra cycle uh, that we built. And so that's an extra long Uh, bicycle and so our kids can sit on the back of it. We can actually put up to three kids on the back of the bike Um, and some of you have seen it. We ride it back and forth to church some. uh, There's bicycles called a Baker Fit bike where it's like a big bucket in the front of the bike and you throw all your kids in there and uh, your groceries and you can ride that. Uh, There's all kinds of strange bicycles. Uh, Something I came up with, uh, so if you steal my idea and patent it, I'm not going to be happy with you. Uh, It's a trailer bike where the kids ride in the bike trailer Uh, But their little bicycles are attached to the back of it. So when uh, they want to ride, they can get out and they ride their bikes behind it. And then they get in the trailer and they go back and forth. That works pretty well, but don't take it around turns too fast. It doesn't work out real well. We've learned that a few times with a few of our different children along the way. Um, There are ski bikes where like a Norda track, you can actually glide and ride a bike. And then I saw this morning, I was just looking up images for different crazy bicycles There's one that you actually put on like a backpack. There's a big arch, and you go for a run, but you have wheels in front of you. You are running underneath the bicycle. So there's another one, a running bike, I guess, if you will. But no man can ride two bicycles is where I wanted to start this morning. Why? Because it's impossible for you to go in two directions at once. If you've ever tried to manage that second bicycle, it's impossible uh, to do. But really a much deeper thought for you this morning is that no man can serve two masters. If you're a guest today, uh, you need to know there's a little bit different uh, emphasis going on today. First of all, if you're a guest today, I'm wearing a tie. Uh, Someone in the congregation this morning said, is there a wedding today or something? Why are you wearing a tie? Uh, So that's a little out of the ordinary. And then the other thing you need to know is a little out of the ordinary this morning is we are going to talk about money. And so some of you come in and you say, all the church ever does is talk about money. That's not the case, but it's going to be the case today. So we're glad that you're here with us uh, this morning. And even this month of February, we've seen a focus to be able to talk about finances. uh, Because this time of year is an appropriate time to do that. Uh, Many people are doing their taxes. Many people are getting their finances in order. Some of you are doing this as well. The spring season is a time where people move and they change real estate. They they change uh, how they've mortgaged their home. There's all kinds of these changes that happen in the spring. And oftentimes in February and in March is when you're making the financial decisions uh, to get ready for that. So it's an appropriate time for us to be talking about it. But more specifically, we're in this sermon series called The Journey to Jerusalem. 
Uh, that title comes from uh, Luke chapter 9 where Jesus sets his face towards Jerusalem and he will make his way there and will arrive in Jerusalem Palm Sunday morning along with uh, Jesus in the text here in Luke. Uh, but we find that Jesus uh, in, in this passage, as we've gone through it, you'll see that Jesus talks about finances a lot. In fact, all the parables that Jesus teaches, we're going to talk about two of them today, uh, there's more than a third of his parables that Jesus directly deals with finances. And so all that Jesus taught here on the earth, uh, he was t- teaching and talking about money often. And it's a common subject. It's something that you and I all deal with. Uh, one of the things I read this year, someone even once said, if you live to be 80 years old, you will spend 50 years of your life thinking about, talking about, managing money. Now, I don't know whether that, how you can actually, you know, tabulate that or if just someone said it and we can't refute it, so, they, so there you go. Uh, but I think that the reality is, is there, there is a lot of time that we spend thinking and being concerned about our finances and how we manage them and, and what we do with them. And so, uh, interestingly enough, Jesus is going to talk about finances, but the first uh, parable that he teaches with, the first illustration he gives is going to be one of a crook. Not someone who manages money well, but someone who is dishonest. And they do this because Jesus wanted to get people's attention. So if you were there in the crowd, and he was going to be talking to his disciples, uh, but he talked loud enough because there was all these other people around trying to catch him and trap him because he was uh, messing with their way of life. And so they're paying attention, so he's teaching his disciples, but making sure that the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious leaders of the day would be able to hear what he was talking about. He wanted to make that very clear. So if you've got your Bibles this morning, if you'll take it out, uh, if you use the Bible in front of you, we're in the book of Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16. I believe it's on page 1095 if you're using that black Bible in front of you. I'm in the New International Version. So if you're on a tablet or on a phone, uh, the NIV is what you're going to be looking for, okay? Our first fill-in for you this morning, you got a white sheet of paper in, in your bulletins this morning. It gives you an outline of where I'm headed. The first fill-in for you this morning, where we're going to start with this first parable is this. A bad man's good example. A bad man's good example. Luke chapter 16, uh, starting right at the beginning in verse 1. Jesus told his disciples. Again, he's talking to his disciples, but he's going to deal with the Pharisees, though, who are there. Verse 14, we'll see when we get there, that he is directly talking to the Pharisees, who are just hanging on every word. Uh, in verse 19, because they are the lovers of money. So he's talking to his disciples, but he's teaching a, a bigger audience, and we are included in that larger audience by us reading the words of Luke, the disciple, being able to read these words. We also are part of that audience. Jesus told his disciples, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he sets the story. Uh, this man has been accused of wasting his master's, his boss's possessions. Uh, this is a parable. The word parable means that it is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. So let's deal first with the earthly story. So he called him and he asked him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be manager any longer. And so the manager then says to himself, verse 3, what shall I do now? My master's taking away my job. I'm strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do. I'll lose my job here. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. 
This morning as I was going through one more time, kind of going through the sermon, just talking through this, I literally caught this. I missed it all week long, and maybe you missed it other times that you've read this passage of his predetermined way that he thought about this. He said, I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, he knew he was about to lose his, lose his job. He had mismanaged his finances. When I lose my job here, people will still welcome me into their houses. He's working a side angle. Who is this manager? He is a steward. A steward is someone who oversaw a rich man's estate. If you're familiar with the passage in the Old Testament with Potiphar and Joseph. Joseph worked in Potiphar's house. He has been accused of wasting his employer's possessions. It could be because of incompetency. It could have been because of dishonesty. We don't have the reason why he's being accused of mismanaging it. But he had great authority over his master's household. He can make decisions on what servants were hired and which ones were fired. He was usually over the, the workers and all of even their children, all of the house staff, everyone who worked there in that house. He would help make business decisions for the master. He has all of those things. He would transact business however he sees fit. And soon he's about to be unemployed. He sees the writing on the wall. He's going to be unemployed and he needs to plan for his own future needs is the way that he sees it. So he concocts a scheme to use his current position, his current contact list, if you will. He's going to run that contact list pretty, pretty quickly to make friends with those who could take care of him when times got bad and they were about to get bad. Verse 5. So he called... <coughs> He called each one of his master's debtors. He went through that list and he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. Now, I don't have any olive oil. That's a lot of olive oil, it seems like to me. I'm not sure. I don't know. I don't know how to med Whatever. Let's move on. <laughs> the the man manager told him, get back in here. Here we go. Take your bills, sit down quickly, and make it 450. Then he asked the second, and how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than the people of light. Jesus makes this connection. He says, the people of this world deal more shrewdly than the people of light. So what is this bad man's good example? Well, the good example that we need to pick up on, first of all, is that he is playing with house money. This is a steward who understands, bottom line, end of the day, this is, these are not his resources that he is working with. And when we look at an earthly story with a heavenly meaning, we need to understand the context of the resources that we are working with are not ours. We are simply stewards. He knew that it wasn't his. So implicit in Jesus' teaching both here and elsewhere that God owns everything. We are stewards to manage what he has given us. He has entrusted to us. We are stewards of time. We are stewards of talents he has given to us. We are stewards of money, the treasure that he has given us, our possessions. All of those things that God has given us, we are stewards of that, but it is his. And this steward, this servant, knew that and understood that and lived as if that were true better than any of us do. In this parable, the steward wasted his master's possessions. Now, this is actually one of the more, con definitely parables-wise, but controversial ones as far as how scholars read this and how to interpret it. And I'll give you a few of the different ways. It's a difficult text to actually figure out what is it that Jesus is going after here. There's a debate over this. 
of whether uh, what he did by reducing the bills, whether it was legal or whether it was illegal. Here's some of the ideas. Some argue that his master had clearly violated Jewish laws against charging interest. And so the steward was rectifying the situation by making them pay back their bill without interest. And so by doing that, by having them pay back their bill without interest, which he wasn't supposed to be doing anyway, he would have been publicly chastised when they realized that the reason why the master needed more money back from them was because of interest. So this was something that Jews were not supposed to do, and so he was making it clear there. That's one option. Others say that Steward was giving up his own commission on the sale. He looked at the sale, he's looked at the business, the transaction that was going to happen there, and he took himself out of the equation. If they only paid back my master and they didn't worry about paying me back, what would they owe? And by doing so, now the master is happy because his transaction has been made, he's been paid back, and they move forward. The third option, which is actually more likely because of the way that Jesus approaches this, is that he just was ripping off his master, his boss. It was an illegal act that he was doing. He was outright stealing from his master. Why? Jesus still calls him an unfaithful and unrighteous servant. Why? Because he's using his master's money, he's using his resources for his own gain rather than the master's gain. See, this principle is a fundamental concept for Christianity as well. Why? Because when we live with a concept that we are in control of what happens to us, or we are living selfishly, it goes against all that we've been given by God. Paul says, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. To be found trustworthy as a steward, you would need to always be working on behalf of your master. To keep your mind at all times, doing not what you want with your own money, but what God would want you to do with your own money. Not doing what you want with your own car, but doing what God wants you to do with your car. Not doing what you want with your home, but doing what God would want you to do with your home. Not doing what you want with your own life, but doing what God wants you to do with your life. You do not choose your own life. God does. That's the principle that's going on behind this, is that this understanding that the master is the master, the servant is not. The bad man here chose to serve his own interests. And maybe the most famous verse of this passage I've already alluded to, Jesus warns his listeners, do not make the same mistake. Verse 13, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Now, modern day, when we write, my kids are learning how to write a persuasive essay. The beginning of the persuasive essay, you start by, here's your hypothesis, or here's your statement. And then you follow that up by three supporting arguments, right? And then you follow that up at the end by restating your hypothesis and how your supporting argument has fulfilled that. Uh, in Jewish writing, they actually would put the strength of the statement would be at the center. So this verse that we're looking at right here, no one can serve two masters, verse 13, either you will hate the one and love the other, or you be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. That is the central focus. That is the hypothesis statement. That is what he wants us to hear. And now he has bookended that with these two parables. First, the parable about the unjust servant, and then the second parable that is about to follow. We need to keep the context of the main thing. The main thing is you cannot serve two masters. What was the bad man's good example? It was that he understood 
who his master was and that these resources were not his. Now whether he used them positively or negatively is not the point that Jesus is trying to make. He points out that the, the, those who are shrewd with money, he says, he looks around, he says, you guys, you have it figured out. He said, if only the children of light understood this truth. So a bad man's a good example. Secondly, a poor man's rich value. This is a parable about a man named Lazarus. A poor man's rich value. Jump down to verse 19, if you will. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus. He was covered with sores, longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. Are you getting a, a visual of how bad this situation is? He's, he's lying at the gate. He, he's lying there near the home of the rich man. He is sick. He is wounded. He's got sores all over his body. And, and the dogs are coming and licking his sores. The time came when the beggar died. The angels carried him to Abram's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, or in hell, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with, guess who, Lazarus by his side. So he called out to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in the water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good, time, good things. Well, Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. Now when we look at this passage... Uh, the first thing we need to see is that uh, when he looks across the chasm, and on the other side of the chasm, he sees Abraham. He calls him Father Abraham. The misunderstanding that those leaders had, those people had, those who are sitting around him, is that because he was a Jew, he would be in heaven. He would be in the kingdom because his father, his lineage was to Abraham. This religiosity in our contemporary context to say not just being a Jew but being religious or being a churchgoer, this is not going to get you into heaven. It's a mistake to think that just because I am part of the right family or because I am part of the right church, that because Randall Baptist has people who are going to be in heaven, that because I am in the room, that I am also going to be in heaven one day. That is the first mistake that he makes. But let's understand, why is the rich man in hell. And he points out to him, he says, it is because of your own love of money. Again, remember the central context, no man can serve two masters. It's because of his own love of money that he has served money rather than serving God. That that is why, and his lovelessness towards Lazarus is why he finds himself in hell. And we will even go further with that in just a second as he describes this. And besides all this, verse 26, between us and you is a great chasm that has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over there to us. Hell is final. Jesus is giving us the description here in this parable that hell is final. He is not in a temporary waiting room. He is in hell and it is a final separation. That is what this uh, chasm is demonstrating, a separation between God and man. And he is saying, Lazarus cannot come to you. You cannot come to Lazarus. This is what this hell is really all about. Yes, the burning fire, but the separation between the two is really what makes hell hell. 
Hell is final. There is no way to cross the chasm. Verse 27. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, Father Abraham he's talking to, would you send Lazarus to my family? For I have five brothers. Let him warn them so they, not will, so they, not, so they will not also come to this place of torment. And Abraham replied, they have Moses, they have the prophets. Let him listen to them. And he says, no, Father Abraham. He said, but if someone from the dead would go to them, then they will repent. He said to them, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. You see, the, the truth that is being said here is the master has already sent his messengers the prophets, they've already been sent. The word has already been shared. The rich man knows it's not going to do any good for Abraham just to say to him, go read your Bible, go read the book of Moses, go read the prophets. Can't you come in a miraculous vision and, and then they will understand and then they will see. If a person is so in love with money because of this, this balance between a master, it said that you can only have one master. Either you're going to love money or you're going to love God. You cannot have both. He's so in love with money, he's going to be deaf to the commands and the warnings and the promises of Moses and the prophets. And even a resurrection from the dead, it says here, will not bring them to repentance. This rich man knows now that he is the one standing in Hades, standing in hell. The rich man knows the reason that he is there is because he did not repent of his sin. He knows the reason that he is there. He knows, he points it out here, that his five brothers, not, not, they would not get into heaven if they took care of the poor. No, they would get into heaven if they did what? If they repented. Lazarus is not in heaven on the other side because he was poor or because he had a bad life here that he was automatically going to get a good life there. He was in heaven, the scripture is teaching us. He is in heaven because he repented. The master, God, had already sent his messengers. He had sent Moses. He had sent the prophets. And Jesus is telling the story knowing that he had been sent. He himself had been sent. Jesus Christ, his only son. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. He sent him as well who would rise from the dead. And even that was not going to be enough for many. The choice was going to have to be made between the two masters. You cannot serve God and mammon, some of your translations say, or God and money, or God and the devil is what those translations will, will, will vacillate between. The choice must be made. So you have a bad man's good example. You have a poor man's rich value. The Pharisees in verse 14, if you look in your passages there, you'll see that they scoff and they mock Jesus. They say, this is absurd. Why? And he says, you are lovers of money. It was built into their systems. It was built into their way of life. It was built into their religiosity, this love of money. And Jesus had so accurately called them out saying, you have made your choice. So the disciples are there. They watch this interaction. They listen to this interaction. They see Jesus go after, very viciously, go after the religious ones. 
They see him making no excuses for them. And the reality was, is these followers of Christ, these Christ followers that we now call Christians, they would have this choice of whether to be followers of God or followers of money. They would have the choice to make as well. And so as Jesus is ascended into heaven, as we fast forward and we see the early church, as it is being formed, uh, they could have the same religious practices that the Jews had, had seen there, the systems that had failed them because their systems kept coming back to this love of money. Or they could live differently. And what we will see, if you fast forward, turn over a few pages, please, is 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. If you're using that pew Bible in front of you, page 1212, 1212. Here's your next fill-in. A needy church that gives abundantly. A needy church that gives abundantly. They made a choice. Those disciples, the apostles who were there, they said, we saw Jesus deal with our Pharisees in this way. If we're going to set up an institution as God created it to be, it is going to need to be different than the way that we saw this thing played out in front of us because Jesus went after it with a vicious bite. So this is not the way that the church is going to behave. So this is how they set it up. 2 Corinthians 8, beginning in verse 1. And now... Brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches, this group of churches in Macedonia. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in what? Rich generosity. For I will testify that they gave as much, this is the Apostle Paul talking, for I testify they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded for us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave to themselves first of all to the Lord and by the will of God also in us. The author Paul who was a religious leader, who was one of the elite, who was the Jew, who was all part of that system built into. He says, let's look at the example of those who are in poverty and see giving generosity. <clears throat> now the historical background, specifically for those churches which were in Macedonia, the Romans, they came in and they took away all of their silver and their gold mines. They took all of those resources. They taxed the copper, the iron smelting. They canceled the right for them to cut trees even. They, were, they had cut down a lot of trees and would ship them back and forth. They were in a location that was strategic to do that, to, to make ships out of the wood there and for home building. And they fought several wars right there in Macedonian soil. Everything had been torn away. If you've seen pictures of what the land looked like after World War II, when everything was decimated, people's homes and farms and lives, that they had been there and a battle had been fought right on their property and everything was gone. This is what Macedonia looked like. For the people of Macedonia, this is what it looked like. They were physically afflicted. They were financially washed out. And yet it says here that through their great trials, they did what? They gave with an abundance of joy. With their deep poverty, they still flourished in generosity. Look whose example they chose to follow. If you look at that balance of serving two masters of God or money, look at the master that they serve. Verse 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, 
yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Now, he willingly chose earthly poverty. The God of the universe, the king of all kings, on the throne of all thrones, became poor. We talk about this in the Christmas story. The idea that the king of all things was born in tiny Bethlehem in a manger. He willingly chose earthly poverty so that we could become eternally rich. What's the largest check you've ever written? When I was 22, I believe, uh, we had bought a house. When we first got married, we lived in a neighborhood that uh, an area that was just growing is in South Carolina, so there was a lot of houses being built all at once. And they were row, it was just one after another, houses going up one after another. And it was much cheaper for us to buy a brand new home than to rent or do anything. So we, we bought a new home. We're 21 years old, just got married, bought our first house. And a year later decided to move. And so then we had to sell the house. And for whatever reason, I don't know if the lawyer screwed something up or I don't know. I just don't think this was a good idea. For me at 22 years old, I had all of the sale of the house went into my bank account. And I had to write the check to pay off the mortgage. And so I personally got to write a $125,000 check. Nathan Milo Wilson. That was fun. Like I will never ever get to write another check that big. The reason why I say it was a mistake is how are they sure that I'm going to write that check to where it's supposed to go? It seems like, I don't know, if any of you are 22 out there, I don't trust you writing a $125,000 check. <laughs> That's the biggest check I've ever written. He willingly chose earthly poverty so that we could become eternally rich. That's as close as I'll ever feel to being rich. It is. We could become eternally rich. Verse 12. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. And at the present time, your plenty will supply what they need, so that in turn their plenty will supply what you need. The goal is equality, as it is written, the one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. I will tell you, these three or four verses have shaped our family. These three or four verses right here have transformed the way our lives live. That we, we call it, for short, a living, giving principle of understanding that in our surplus, the days when we have surplus, we give it away because there are going to be days when you don't have surplus. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. When tragedy strikes and you need help from someone else, it does happen. And we have seen God have other people, people we would have never imagined be willing to help us. They gave. And I believe that's really what was demonstrated here by the early church of what God intended for the church to be. What's being referenced here when it says, the one who gathered much did not have too much. The one who gathered little did not have too little. Does any of you have a little a letter or a mark or an asterisk next to that? That is talking about Exodus chapter 16. He's referring back to Exodus chapter 16 when the children of Israel were in a place where they couldn't provide food for themselves. Do you remember this? They're in the wilderness. And while they're there in the wilderness, there is what they called manna falling from heaven like snow falling from heaven. It was probably 20 degrees, not 60 degrees, wherever Brian is. 
There's manna falling from heaven. All they have to do is go out and pick it up. And it's food. The word manna literally means, what in the world is this? But they ate it. It was good. It was like some type of mix between a Twix bar and a sandwich. But one of the rules was, they could not take more than that family would need for one day. If they did, if they took more than they needed for one day, what happened? Do you remember? It would mold. It would rot. And then on the weekend, they would take more because there was a Sabbath day. So they would take more. So they have what? Enough that they needed. It's a symbol. He's using this as a specific example because the, the listeners would know what that was referring to. The symbol is uh, when you hoard the excess, it has a rotting effect on your soul. There is nothing wrong with saving for the future. I believe that there's plenty of scripture that gives us the background that we should be doing that. But when it comes to a point that if that's what you trust in, it is now beginning to rot your soul. And how do you know if you've gotten to that point? When you've saved extravagantly but you don't give extravagantly, that's when you realize that you have begun to hoard what God has given you. And don't be surprised if it begins to rot. There's nothing wrong with buying nice things. But there becomes a point where nice things are what you most delight in. And that's, those things are what you find your identity in. The new toys that you have the most pleasure in, the new car, the, the, the stuff that you have in front of you. There's nothing at all the matter with having those things unless that is what starts to define who you are and creates your identity. And now you're beginning to see what it looks like, what they saw with the manna, and it begins to rot in front of you. And for some reason it doesn't make you quite as happy as you thought it was going to. It's not quite what you realized or had hoped for. God wants me to learn to give out of what I have been given. God wants you to learn how to give out of what you have been given. For us specifically, God has worked through vehicles. And I don't know why, and I know I've shared some of this in here before, so I'm just going to repeat it again, because I just think God has demonstrated himself in a very real way. In 1999, I had a pretty nice car. It worked. It cost me $450. Sold it and bought a little sports car I thought was great. He sat in like a rocket ship to the moon. It was amazing. I had it for two days, and the engine blew up. My parents rescued me. I had given away, I had, had traded away a reliable vehicle that they had gotten me and I had bought this lemon of a car because I thought it was amazing. And they basically came in, swept in, and at least helped me replace the engine so that I could drive this space car around for a while. A few years later, after kind of seeing that and coming to, to grips with this, there's a man named Sergeant Quinones, Giovanni Quinones that I was stationed with. A year later, I gave the car to him. One of the, I don't know if my parents loved the fact that I gave the car away that they had paid for a second time. But I gave it to him in 2000. It was about 18 months later in 2002 where our family was looking for a vehicle. We're trying to figure out we had one vehicle at that point. My grandfather gives me a call Memorial Day weekend. He said, you're going into the ministry. I'd really like to help you out. We've got a, a car at this dealership in Florida. I was in South Carolina. 
it, all you got to do is come and pick it up. It's yours. Basically a brand new car. Never imagined we'd be able to do that. About three years later, four years later, we're starting to have a family. It's beginning to grow. We're trying to figure out what we're going to do. We literally were at a car dealership. And if some of you are car dealers, great. Do a good job. But this guy was intense. And I wanted the Dodge Durango because it was the coolest thing that a family could have. And he literally, it was at the, at the end of the month, and I'm trying to decide. I said, well, we're not going to decide today. It's not the way our family does things. We just need a little bit of time. We're going to walk through this. I'm literally walking to the car in the parking lot, and he comes across the megaphone on the thing and starts just shouting numbers, hoping that I'll turn around. <laughs> I almost turned around. And I actually went back the next day, and I said, remember that last number that you said yesterday? He said, it's the first of the month. I don't want to talk to you car wasn't for sale anymore. And a family in our church that same day called us and said, we bought a new minivan yesterday. We'd like to know if you want our old one. So we gave away the car, kept the van. The story continues and continues. Those are three examples. There's about six different examples of the way that God has provided for us. So I don't know if you need a vehicle this morning. I don't think I've got an extra one. But if God leads... Here's the last point. A bankrupt heart that overflows. A bankrupt heart that overflows. Look at verse 10 of chapter 9. Turn probably one page in your Bibles. Chapter 10, excuse me, chapter 9, verse 10. Now he who supplies the seed to the sower and the bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in what? In thanksgiving to God. This is the key point for you to understand. That the source, we have nothing in and of ourselves. Our hearts are bankrupt before God. We have nothing to offer. But he who supplies the sower, the seed, and bread for food. There's food on our table because God has shown himself day after day. The sun comes up, the sun goes down. There's food on our table because of who God is, not because of anything you or I have done. We are bankrupt before God, and yet your generosity will do what? It will result in thanksgiving to God. Verse 12, the service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, but it is an overflow with many expressions of thanks to God. It is not just going to meet your needs, it is going to overflow. Because of the service by which you have approved yourselves, others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies the confession of the gospel of Christ. This is the gospel being lived out. The gospel that Jesus is who he says he is. The gospel that he set up his church to behave differently than any other religious institution on the planet. Why? Because he is God and his son is Jesus Christ and he died for you and for me and that changes everything. And in their hearts, verse 14... And their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace that God has given to you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Friends, the choice is yours. You cannot serve two masters. You will love the one or hate the other. Or you will love the other and despise the other. As the band is coming forward this morning, I read a lot of leadership books 
I love leadership. It interests me. It excites me. There's a lot of questions about how do you motivate people. The idea of what's more powerful, the carrot or the stick. You dangle a carrot out there and you say, this is going to be good for you. What's the carrot? God will make you rich. There's a lot of Pentecostal churches that will go with that approach. God will make you rich. There's the carrot on the stick. Chase this carrot. And to be totally honest with you, the more Baptist approach is the stick. (laughs) Obey. But the Apostle Paul doesn't take either of those approaches. So Paul turns neither to guilt nor greed as his primary motivator, but grace. He says, where would we be without Jesus' generosity for you and for me? The same place of millions of people in this world are going to be without yours. And it wouldn't matter if Jesus died a thousand times over if no one ever heard about it. 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, remember the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. As most of you know, I'm sure all of you know, Billy Graham passed away this week. He was the very best at helping people make this choice. It was not original to him, but here's a statement. If you look up his name, one of the many quotes that come with his, you cannot serve God and mammon, you have to make a choice. As they are looking through and, and, you know, the newspapers, whether or not they've got all access to everything, they're looking at what was Billy Graham's net worth when he passed away this week at 99 years old. They figure he's worth about $25 million dollars. Check out what his charities, his, his agencies are worth. $635 million for Samaritan's Purse. $102 million for the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association. It's a man who understood where his value was. It's a man who understood the choice that he was going to make between God and mammon. The choice is yours this morning. This man had made a choice to serve God. What about you? The ushers are coming forward this morning. This is a time that we have as a time of response. We encourage you to respond this morning specifically. We've put money as a forefront for you today to consider giving in a way that is making a choice to put God first. There's ways to give that aren't in this room, and we know that. We want you to know that as well. Many people mail their checks in. Many people give online. That is beginning to get more and more prevalent. We've even added a new thing in the back where you can, there's a giving station there in the back if that interests you. But don't hear this sermon as all about the money. If that's all you heard from me today, that is a mistake. The money is a response to the condition of a bankrupt heart. To know and understand That Jesus did all. He gave all for you and for me. And our lives have to be prioritized in a way that matches up with that. And so if giving is a way that you need to take that step, good. Take that step. If how you spend your time is a way that you need to take that step, do that. Take that step. If the way that you're using your abilities and your talents, if you're doing something with them that is shady, if you're you're like this unjust servant and you're, you're, man, you are sharp. But what are you using that for? Yourself or things of God? Do what I pray this morning, that your word has once again been clear, that the central focus of what you've put before us today with this passage in this moment in the scripture today here 
February 2018, Lord, that you would make it so clear to us the way that you want us to respond. Lord, if there's some who need to make a decision that's not financial, it's not, they just need to write something down on the card and say, I'm going to make a decision today. I'm going to make a choice on how I'm going to live my life going forward. I pray that you give them the guts, the willingness to respond. In 2 Corinthians 8 talks about the willingness of the heart or their willing hearts here this morning. Thank you, Lord, for how you're moving, how you're working. Lord, encourage us to to be prompted to follow you. In Jesus' name we pray.